0: I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> I better just start with this. Um, so tonight's talk is about resolving feuds, squabbles, disconnections, fights, uncomfortable situations without using avoidance coping and why it's so important to resolve these uh issues without avoiding and uh, I'll talk about the toll of avoidance coping and I'll talk about ways to safely uh, do the work of addressing the underlying emotional dread of reconnecting with a difficult person and then also talk about the ways we safely do that and hopefully my voice will sustain me through this. (laughs) <laughs> then we'll have a meditation where we actually practice the tools. So, um, earliest, most painful memories in life involve tension with our caregivers, the adults around us. Human beings are a social species and we are an attachment species. We are set up with a core drive to attach to others. At first, that core drive is of, you know of course the infant attaches to an adult to have its needs met and it gets its needs met by emotionally expressing its needs to the parent infants and even toddlers don't use language obviously to express their needs they use the very most fundamental Parts of emotions, which are essentially they express their inner distress externally through cries, through laughter, through <coughs> uh, body movements, and so to the degree that the child, the infant, uh, is emotionally seen and understood by the caregiver, creates a sense of a secure base, and the child then moves into life with the sense that other people won't abandon it when they feel distressed. And human beings, because of our very uh, neurological setup, we don't achieve what's called homeostasis, where we're essentially back in a neutral state after we're activated by an unpleasant event. We don't return to essentially calmness until we connect feel the feelings and disclose the feelings to another human being. It's called co-regulation. Other species can auto-regulate entirely. If you're a bird, you're startled, you can actually take flight, go to a branch, your uh, sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system will go back to a homeostatic flow between the two states. But if you're a human being and you're startled or you're frightened and you don't connect and express then you wind up stuck in your sympathetic nervous system or if you're completely overwhelmed and you're dissociative, you'll be, you will wind up stuck in the parasympathetic. You'll essentially self-numb, emotionally numb. So for an infant, any experience with the adult where there's tension and uh, a feeling of being judged shamed, ridiculed, or literally uh, stonewalled, where the parent just turns away, doesn't maintain attunement for the child, feels, some psychologists say, like annihilation, because the child is so dependent upon caregiving for not just getting its needs met, but also for soothing its emotions. And infants experience emotions far more somatically and far more uh, powerfully than adults do, because they are more right hemispheric. And the more you're in your right hemisphere, which has far more connections with the body, as we move into our adult life, we become more left hemispheric, and the left hemisphere has very few connections to the body. It's the abstract thinking realm, and we can live completely, uh, often disconnected from the somatic experience. Anyway, we develop very young in life the belief that any tension with an important person could be devastating for us emotionally, and that's the important thing to take away. That tension, conflict, uh, feeling someone judge us or criticizes or shame us to a child feels like the end of the world, and into our adult life, even though intellectually we know that someone being angry or shaming or even perhaps yelling at us is not going to kill us, but emotionally, the right hemisphere of the mind does the brain does not know that. Right hemisphere only learns by experience; it doesn't learn by logic or reasoning or being told something. It's like trying to tell yourself not to be nervous or have a panic attack when you have to speak in public and you don't like doing it. You can tell yourself, oh, will be fine. Even if I fuck up, I won't know any of those people. What can they do? Still, you might want to shit your pants if you're like, you know. So, when we have conflict in our life, we all, to varying degrees, have this, nagging emotional beliefs stored unconsciously as what's known as implicit memories. Implicit memories are behaviors and beliefs that are not held consciously, they're held unconsciously. For example, if very early in life you nearly drown in a pond, then you might wind up with a belief that water for you is dangerous, and even as an adult you might find going into a kiddie pool terrifying. And so you've formed an emotional implicit belief that water equals drowning. So likewise, most children develop an implicit emotional belief unconsciously held that uh, conflict with any person that has any attachment importance in our life is going to lead to devastating emotional feelings. And so when that happens... There's basically two things we can do. We can resolve the emotions that are activated, and I'll talk about later how we do that, or many people won't want to do that. When something triggers uncomfortable emotions, what they do instead is avoid the things and the people and the situations that activate the anxiety or the fear or the distress. So we can either deal with it or we can avoid it. Avoidance has two ways that people approach. They, One will seek evasive distractions to not deal with the situation. Procrastination is a famous way uh, to not deal with an emotionally scary thing. If you have an opportunity in life, <coughs> for example, to... Uh, try out for a job that you've always wanted or to a creative event that you've always wanted, but you keep stalling rather than putting together the application, it doesn't mean that you're lazy at all. It means that your emotional mind believes that submitting your work to others will lead to rejection and that rejection will be excruciating. So you avoid the very thing that could be beneficial <clears throat> because there's an emotional belief that putting ourselves out there, offering ourselves to others, leads to abandonment and shaming and criticism. So that's why people procrastinate. They don't procrastinate because they're lazy. So people, will <clears throat> when they have a conflict, disconnection, fight, feud, disagreement, uh, disappointment, or feel guilty... In a relationship will watch television, they'll busy themselves with chores, they'll essentially fill up their lives with distractions so that they don't have to think about the event and deal with it. That's evasion. More often, just people will not do what they need to do. They will not pick up the phone they will avoid reaching out and addressing it with the other human being. In our culture, it leads to all kinds of unskillful behaviors like ghosting, you know, uh, I love the term, but obviously the activity itself is kind of unfortunate. So, <coughs> sorry, my <coughs> my voice is in shreds, so... Uh, What is the toll of avoidance coping? Why is it so bad for us? Well, one, uh, it leads to rumination. When people don't want to feel, process emotions, when they live in the story about the event, and what they'll do is cook up through rumination, thinking about what happened, a justification. I shouldn't be the one. They're the one who's always, I'm always the one that's in the past reached out. And I was the one who's right here because the way I framed the story makes me look good and they couldn't possibly think that they've done the right thing here so I'm not going to be the one to reach out. Really that's just a form of avoidance. It's just I don't want to pick up the phone because picking up the phone will activate early memories of rejection by my father or my mother. So it co- takes up a lot of neural time as opposed to simply dealing with it which is a very fast process I'll talk about and actually it resolves the issue (laughs) but of course resolving things requires exposing ourselves to the vulnerability and most people just don't want to do that Right in uh, conflict I shouldn't say most people, a lot of people I work with certainly if somebody has what's called anxious attachment or disorganized attachment or avoidant attachment, in other words, anything but secure attachment, they will also feel an inclination to not address uh, conflicts because early on in life, their relationship with the core caregiver informed them that any kind of conflict leads to abandonment. So um, secondary effects is that people who It's been shown clinically that people who avoid dealing with conflicts in their life uh, wind up with a whole host of maladies and illnesses, somatic um, illnesses uh, that are essentially caused by the excessive cortisol that is released when we don't emotionally process. When we avoid dealing with a conflict, that fear, anger, or sadness doesn't go away simply because we're not dealing with it. It reminds, remains latently stored and active in the right orbital frontal. <coughs> it leads to, not just do we avoid in that, then avoidance coping winds up being like a wildfire that spreads across our life. If we don't deal with a disconnection with somebody who's important, like a roommate, a sibling, an old friend, a romantic partner, it just won't. We just won't avoid dealing with that person. It will start to creep in across the li- our lives. We'll avoid opportunities. We'll avoid uh, asking for help from other people. We'll avoid uh, reconnecting with other people or embracing new opportunities. So avoidance coping is kind of like an emotional. Uh, almost a disease that spreads across the entire psychic landscape. Of course, being my work is largely in counseling, and so I'm very often helping people deal with avoidance, coping. It's Along with relational issues, it's probably one of the most uh, uh, constant themes. Um, cutting off people leads to freezing of emotional states. If there's a conflict with a roommate or a friend or or somebody at work and we don't address it and we start using avoidance coping leads us to rumination. We think about it a lot and then we justify completely disconnecting. Now, then what happens is the emotions we felt never get resolved. And that leads to... Uh, essentially a buildup of uh, emotional underlying latent discomfort which then can activate addictions and so forth. Which is why in 12-step programs there's such an emphasis on reconnecting with people in the 8th and ninth step because it's only through uh, essentially addressing, going through the fear of acknowledging mistakes or telling somebody that we're angry with them that we can begin to resolve the fear and sadness that is activating both addictions and uh, maladaptive coping strategies. Now, of course, there are relationships in our lives that are toxic or abusive, and nobody is saying that if there's somebody who's in any way been verbally abusive to the, or is unsafe... Um, still there are ways that we can resolve those conflicts as well and very often a more skillful way than to simply just disconnect and um, just essentially wash our hands of the conflict. So again, rumination leads to not only reactive behaviors like cutting off, it also creates an ongoing narrative in the mind that we believe is objective and nobody's inner narrative is objective. It doesn't matter how objective and true your version of events are. There's so many clinical studies that show that nobody accurately uh, self-narrates any important experience. There's some fascinating clinical studies of people looking at the same emotional event, and uh, this is what they use very often to discredit uh, eyewitness testimonies, and it's kind of startling when you show people, you have people, a lot of people in the study in the same room, and then two actors will do something that's extraordinary, and then you interview the people, and ask them what did they experience, what did they see, and everybody comes up with a different fucking story, and everybody misses important points, and everybody frames the story starting at a different place. So imagine you're in a conflict with a friend, and you feel that you did something, reached out, helped them, and they didn't. So um, you have a story due to the fact you did something nice and the person didn't acknowledge it. So that's your narrative. But they have a story, oh, at my job I'm constantly doing nice things for other people. Nobody recognizes me. Or I've done nice things for you in the past that you didn't acknowledge. And so their narrative is longer and it justifies their views. Your narrative is shorter, it justifies your response, and both people wind up cutting each other off because they've created very uh, essentially uh, 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 very justifying narratives that rationalize the emotions. That's what the left hemisphere does very well. It justifies emotional behaviors. <coughs> I was uh, talking with somebody in counseling. I know they wouldn't object to me sharing this. They were having a fight with their partner over who should buy the next dishwasher detergent. <laughs> and of course, that they f- she focused on this and so did he, because for each of them it is a convenient way to explain why they were feeling tension in their relationship. So it's essentially a uh, it's a projection or a displacement of the emotional energy. Um, our culture makes avoidance coping so much more prevalent because we are unfortunately so prone to use non-impersonal, uh, non-synchronous, or asynchronous I should say, forms of communication. Uh, in other words, we text, we email, we post on social media, and so in those engagements we get the belief that we're communicating, which we're not. Because communication is not just exchanging words. The bulk of human communication is nonverbal. Well, the left hemisphere, your left hemisphere right now is listening to the words I say and processing them. In the background, the fast circuits of your brain are actually neurally processing my body language, my tone of voice, the ambience of the room, how your body is responding. And so that's why sometimes when you meet someone, everything can seem really great, and yet you don't trust them. Your gut instinct says, this is not okay. Or B... You can meet someone who your intellectual mind knows is not a good idea but you're attracted to that person because in the background so much of the processing that bonds people is not on words, it's based on emotions. When you don't actually hear and experience the interaction in person or on the phone where you hear tone of voice, you're not getting you're not communicating. You're simply exchanging words. But then it leads to a rife amount of miscommunication. Fortunately, I'm, an, I'm ancient, so I, I, when it comes to texting or social media, if it's beyond, I will meet you here at such and such a time, or, yeah, the last album they put out sucked, then I won't, I won't do it because <clears throat> it doesn't appeal to me and I've seen so in my work in counseling I hear so many horror stories of somebody getting cut off or ghosted because of a well-meaning text that was misinterpreted. So all, as I said, 12-step and spiritual practice focus on restoring a, a sense of mental health and Uh, peace of mind by encouraging people where it is possible to reconnect with others. Some spiritual paths overemphasize in my belief forgiveness. I think very often forgiveness is a spiritual bypass. If we're angry or sad there might be a very legitimate reason. We don't have to however avoid people because we're angry or disappointed or sad. <clears throat> and forgiveness is not necessary to do the work that will both begin to alleviate the tendency to rely on avoidance coping and that's one of the most healthy thing in your life you can do which is not avoid conflict not avoid difficult interactions so the way that we first approach This is one, by processing the emotions that have been activated by the current uh, tension or feud or fight. Every time in your life you avoid something or you uh, are angry in a really strong way, it's because a certain event has activated a very early emotional experience. That's why people have strong emotional responses, not because of the coworker who doesn't turn down their music, or uh, <laughs> the um, the people upstairs who walk too loud, or the roommate who doesn't pay their rent on time, or whatever. It's because it's partially that, but it's also because not being taken seriously, not being seen, not having your experience being considered activates early memories of that and those early memories are far more wounding and emotionally resonant. So there's always an old emotion, an old series of events activated whenever there's a as they say in therapy, if it's hysterical it's historical. So the first thing we need to do is feel the emotions that are activated without narrating the events. When people narrate, get stuck re- repeating in their head how dare that person treat me that way, how dare my uh, sibling you know, tell me I'm not doing enough for my parents when they don't do anything or whatever. When <clears throat> we live in the story, we cut off the full somatic expression of the emotion and the emotion doesn't get processed. It remains latently present and stuck. The only way to begin to process an emotion is to feel it and not cut it off by going up into your left hemisphere and repeating the story. You essentially have to stay present with your body and feel the anger or feel the uh, sadness or feel the guilt. Whatever it is you need to feel, you need to feel it without repeating the story. Obviously that's scary for a lot of us because we live disembodied lives up in our head relying on stories. We live essentially lives that cut off our emotions and therefore uh, not only are we easily triggered by small events very often but also in many uh, cases those emotions build and lead to increasing cutoffs and so forth. So uh, the first thing is is to create a safe inner container to feel what needs to be felt without the overlay of a story that cuts off the somatic experience. As children, if we didn't fully feel our emotions and express them, we wouldn't get our needs met because that's our only tool to be seen by caregivers. So it's in very human processing that only emotions that... Emotions are essentially uh, filed away as complete only when they fully arise in the body and naturally pass. If you go up and you tell the story of what happens, you will essentially cut that off and that leads. That's why PTSD and traumatic responses are so difficult to deal with because people disappear and dissociate, and they don't feel and allow the full emotional response to happen. Uh, so the second is we need to, to process the emotion, not only feel it, disclose it to another person who will mirror it, who will understand it and receive it. Because again, when we were children, the very core of emotions, their purpose, is not only to be to express an inner state of being, but to have another person see it and understand it. So, emotions only go away when they're co-regulated, by seen by another human being. This, by the way, I'm basing this on the work of some great clinical uh, psychology by Alan Shore, Fonaghi, Leslie Greenberg, and all. So, there's a lot of, I w- uh, it's worth reading about it if you're interested. <coughs> Acknowledging the tension eventually with the individual is the way we transform from the child who's stuck in no-win situations with a caregiver to an adult who can address conflict and set boundaries. So it's important to show ourselves that we're no longer in the vulnerability of infancy where we couldn't confront abusive parents or parents who were unkind at times or not available. We show ourselves that we are now no longer disempowered human beings by literally Uh, directly uh, telling the other how we feel in a very set way. Now, to do this, it's important to develop distress tolerance, which is essentially to feel the practice feeling the distress and emotions that are painful that you will experience when you first have to go into a difficult conversation if you don't know how to be with vulnerability or discomfort, you'll always want to avoid talking things through with someone. The reason we avoid is largely not because of any sense that we're going to be endangered. It's generally because we don't want to feel the feelings of vulnerability or anger or sadness that stem from early childhood experiences. So the only way we can walk through Uh, difficult tense interactions is by learning to hold the emotions and feelings that will be triggered. They are primarily somatic. So the first thing we do is we, in our practice, visualize the event that we're avoiding and then we bring attention to the parts of the body that get tight and contracted. That's how you know you're having a negative emotion because your body, either in the stomach, the chest, the throat, or the face, always the front of your body. Emotions are activated by the vagal vagus nerve, so they're from here to here in your body. Um, The somatic part, that is. So you feel it. And then you soothe it, which means you don't cut it off, you don't avoid it, but you relax the breath, the ab breath, and you soften the belly, relax the shoulders, open up the chest, so that you're still feeling the discomfort, but you're creating an embodied state that is less overwhelming. In my work in counseling, there's so many times I have to deal with someone who comes in very angry or very sad, and to overcome the natural response of wanting to talk them down and just to give them a safe container, I'm constantly relaxing my belly, opening up my chest, softening the muscles in my throat, and extending the length of my out-breath. The more <clears throat> relaxed the body, the more relaxed the mind, the more we can work walk through things that are initially very scary for us. Finally, it's important to reconnect in the right way, which is um, to, one, set boundaries that will make you safe. Boundaries are, I'm only going to talk about this topic. So if you're engaging with someone who is uh, generally tends to be bringing, throw the entire kitchen sink at you, you say, I'm only going to have this conversation if we keep the topic focused on this single uh, issue. The second thing is we set ground rules. <coughs> in Imago therapies, uh, they have very good mirroring practices where you might invite the person where the, you're in the conflict or dis- you know, discomfort with to go first, and just to say what they experienced and how they felt about it. During it, don't interrupt no matter what and listen very closely. Don't prepare what you're going to say. And then at the end of when they speak, repeat back to them what you've heard. Okay, I'm hearing that you believe that you were right not to pay, you know, the money that you owe to our common charges because you feel that I've in the past not done my duty. You simply repeat back what you hear without any self-justification and then ask, did I get it right? And then hopefully they say, yeah. Then you say, okay, now you do exactly what I did, which is listen and repeat back my point of view and what I feel. Then you express your views on the issue if they can't do that, if they start interrupting you, if they s- refuse to repeat back what you've said, then you say, okay, I'm not going to engage any further until you follow the ground rules. If they start bringing up another topic outside of the, the, the formatted, then you, can, you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to disconnect until you are ready to do this process the way that I've laid it out which will make it safe for both of us. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. The good news is, is that if you reach out <coughs> and it leads to continued disconnection, if the other person is just abusive or refuses to follow the, the rules of engagement, is in other words, in any way unsafe, then at least you will not have ingrained avoidance coping you'll have done the work that shows you that you can, instead of avoiding conflict, that you can show up and stand up and express your needs and set boundaries. And if they don't do it, you will still feel empowered and have agency in your life and have confidence to do it elsewhere. So even if the person is not available or uh, is in some way... uh, doesn't want to engage in a safe way, you still get the benefits. Okay? So that's about all my voice can do. Let's actually put this into practice in our meditation. (coughs) So... find a really comfortable seated position and what that really means is just try to keep your body from your buttocks to the top of your head in as much of a straight alignment as possible. The more balanced the, the less strain in your muscles. Where you have a balanced body your muscles don't have to strain to keep you upright. Balance just helps you stay upright without having to physically uh, strain. So the key to that most often is to gently pull your shoulders in line with your buttocks and then tilt your head slightly up, like you're looking at a very tall building. Those two simple techniques tend to create... A keep us from slouching, which then makes meditation and sitting very painful. So close the eyes or look at the ground in front of you. And just see if you can cultivate a state of arrival, by which I mean that feeling you get when you've taken a long journey, you've reached a destination. And you can put your bags down and sit before a beautiful vista that you've yearned to arrive at, and you have that feeling of, I've got nothing else I need to do, nowhere else I need to go, I don't have to please anyone, I don't have to perform and wear a smile, or look good for anyone I can just fully relax and arrive in life without anything else I need to do today. And how does that feel when you arrive in life? Well, there's a general ease in the body. And then when you reach a place that's really wonderful, you drink it in. So, for this meditation let's just drink in the sounds and feelings of this time and place we've wound up at in life. The sounds from the street, the feelings that are occurring in the body, Just be present for it. Try not to narrate what's happening. In other words, while there will be inner chatter going on, try to focus on the actual experience, the sounds and feelings, the sensation of your body breathing, any tightness in the belly or chest or contraction in the muscles of the face. Sometimes it's really useful to keep an anchor in mind. An anchor is an ongoing sensation like the ones I've mentioned, the breath, the sounds. So you might want to dedicate yourself to one specific present experience, just really hearing each moment without adding a story or a visual of what's creating sounds, or counting your breaths, such as think one as you breathe in and two as you breathe out, and three during the pause in between that out-breath and the next in-breath, then four on the next in, five on the next out, six on the pause, and really focus your attention on the pause, because that's where people wander off. If you like, you could work with a repeating phrase, which in some traditions they call a mantra. Buddhist traditions, we often call it a meta phrase. Just a phrase that's very simple that you repeat over and over again. The phrase itself just denotes a desire for inner peace for oneself and others, like, may I be peaceful, may all beings be peaceful. Or may I live with ease. May all beings live with ease. The words aren't really important, and you can make up your own. What's important is that you repeat these words in your mind with a very gentle, caring, emotionally resonant tone. Focus on the tone, the emotion you feel, rather than the words. So as you do this practice, what will occur is you will eventually be captivated by a thought. And the thought will pull you away from your anchor. And that's exceptionally, of course, natural and common. For much of our lives, we train the mind that when we're not focused on something external, that's the time we're allowed to think. Unfortunately, when we allow the mind to wander, that's actually when we experience the most stress. As the famous study by Harvard showed, a wandering mind is a stressful mind. When you engage the mind on a task, even a simple task like repeating a phrase, counting your breath, listening to sounds, then you not only develop core memory structures and attentional structures in the brain, but you wind up being much happier. The focused, Settled mind is a much happier mind than a wandering one. <clears throat> wandering is neurally stressful. So we'll spend some time in silence. If your mind does wander away, just bring it back. Don't add any judgment, any frustration, impatience, criticism. None of that helps, it only makes meditation more difficult. What makes it eventually much easier to cultivate both peace and uh, neural rewards is to, every time you wander away and you realize it, feel good. You're developing awareness. mm So at this point, you can allow the anchor you've been holding in mind, the breath, the phrase or sounds, just to still be there but not in the foreground of attention and uh, bring to mind an individual with whom you're experiencing some disappointment or guilt or outright conflict, tension. Just hold that person their image if you can in your mind. Generally mental images fade in and out. They may not be that easy to sustain but that's alright. Just bring to mind as much as you can of a mental image of that person and then repeat a very simple phrase, not the story of what happened, but just a simple, simple phrase describing the core feeling associated with this person. For example, I was mistreated. I was not taken into consideration. I wasn't cared about, I wasn't seen. A very simple phrase. Or it could be a phrase associated with guilt. I could have handled it differently. Any phrase that has a kind of emotional quality that you just repeat in your mind while you hold the image of the person Now, at first, it might be difficult to connect with feelings. Sometimes we live our lives so disembodied that even when we bring to mind a stressful relation, experience, we can go into the story too quickly. We don't ever feel the actual emotions associated. And... At first, when you do this practice, you might not feel anything, but see if you can persist. Just look for even the slightest degree of contraction in your belly, your chest, your throat or your face, essentially the bagel highway. And just if you Need, you might play around with a phrase you're repeating or play around with a different image. Just see if you can find some tightness in the front of the body. And if you can activate the emotion, then just bring your attention to it and keep observing it and just allow it. So if it's anger, it might be this energy of of, uh, kind of uh, eruption in the front of the body that moves up through the chest to the face. If it's sadness, it might be a feeling of heaviness behind the eyes and, and the chest and numbness. If it's guilt, it might be a kind of wincing in the face, a kind of tightness in the throat. Whatever you feel, you feel. There's no wrong way to feel. Just relate to the feeling like it's a a kind of inner child, as we say a second you that is wounded or vulnerable and just needs to be seen and listened to, not judged, not run away from. So just be with whatever you feel, even if it's very slight. Even if it's difficult to feel anything, if you feel numb, just stay with that. So at this point, now imagine us doing the vulnerable, dreaded work of actually not using text, but actually picking up the phone and calling up this person and saying we'd like to talk about a recent event or the event that's caused the disconnection and just see if you can activate that feeling of dread, uh, discomfort in the body associated with the vulnerable picking up the phone and the possibility of however they might respond, just feel that kind of underlying distress or. Whatever it is that we don't want to feel, see if you can feel it. This is called essentially exposure therapy or distress tolerance. You're just going and learning how to be with the very feelings and emotions that you don't want to feel. And if you can be with them, then you won't avoid situations in life that activate these feelings. see if you can be with whatever internal discomfort arises when you think about walking up to that individual, picking up the phone, encountering the person. Purposely bring up the difficult experience. And then let's soften and make the experience even easier to be with. One of the tools of distress tolerance is body relaxation. So while you hold the dreaded experience, imagine yourself right there, the person looking at you angrily or hurt, accusatorily. And then just while you hold that, Take a nice full in-breath, slightly lift your shoulders and then as you breathe out, drop your shoulders. While you hold the difficult image in your mind, take a nice in-breath and then as you breathe out, soften the belly. And all of these are telling your limbic structures using the insula, and the dorsal vagal nerves, telling your amygdala that you're safe. You don't have to be as frightened or angry or you can still have the emotions but they don't have to be quite as strong. And then focus on keeping your out-breath as long and smooth and relaxed as possible. So this is self-soothing. And finally, if you have to deal with a difficult interaction, you can use titrating figures, which is imagine someone that you feel really safe with and put them side by side with the person who's Difficult for you right now. So when you're actually in that interaction, you could visualize or be with that individual and feel safer. (coughs) So whenever you're ready let go of the image and just very slowly open up your eyes enough to see the ground in front of you and try to integrate sight and color with this embodied awareness where you're aware of how you feel you're aware of the room around you you're aware of your thoughts but you're not allowing sight and thought to push body sensations into the background